Hey everybody, happy Friday. How's it going? My name's Trevin McGee from Lawrence.com, and this is Eric Moline, staring off in the middle distance like he was just given some really bad news from scenestealers.com. Yes, I was. I was given the bad news that next week is the opening of Green Lantern. Green. <laughs> I'm kidding. The previews look great. Yeah, they don't. I don't know anything about I, Green I Lantern, don't either. so I have no expectations, uh, but what I've seen, not, not, hap- not good, not no, happy. no. But, but that's not what we're here to talk about this no, week. We're here to talk about two movies. Um, one that's uh, going to open t- today, and that's uh, Super 8, the new J.J. Abrams, um, executive produced by Steven Spielberg. Sci-fi Today's movie. Friday, right? Yeah. It opened yesterday in a sneak preview across the nation. Yeah, but it opened <laughs> wide. It opened wide today. Open up and say Super 8 on Friday. All right. Um, so we're going to talk about that, and then uh, we're going to talk about Greatest Movie Ever Sold real quick, Morgan Spurlock's new documentary. Yes, sir. And then if we've got some time and we don't hate each other by the end, uh, we are going to talk about your your top ten list that you cheated on this week and made it a top eight list. In honor of Super 8, the top eight uh, top kids' eight adventure what? movies. Kids' kids, centric. Centri- 1980s movie. Basically the top eight movies that J.J. Um, Abrams was trying to rip off when he made um, oh, Super 8. God. Okay. Well, let's just jump in. Ripoff is not always a bad thing. No, There's no negative connotation right, there. Right, okay, go on. So let's start. So Super 8 is the new movie uh, directed by J.J. Abrams, who mm-hmm. is probably uh, best known for uh, now for his reboot of Star Trek a couple years ago. Probably. Before that, uh, Mission Impossible 3, he directed that. He's been the producer responsible for movies like Cloverfield. Um, and also a lot of he, television properties. Yeah, Fringe of, he produced and Lost. Lost and, and Alias was where he got his big break. Felicity, really. Felicity too. Yeah. So so Abrams, um, he's kind of entered the Hollywood A list though, as far as um, uh, which you is know, quite big, a, uh, an accomplishment considering that he started. I mean, he wrote regarding Henry. You know, he wrote. Yeah, scripts. Yeah, first and foremost. Well, you know, the, a couple years back, he did a TED talk, and he was featured on the cover of Wire when Star Trek came out, talking about the mystery box and mm-hmm. his approach to storytelling. And and honestly, I'm a big fan. I, I agree with his approach to uh, filmmaking, and I think uh, he's one of those intelligent guys who can make mainstream films that don't uh, dumb down everything. And I think that he doesn't insult an audience's t- intelligence. Um, most of the time. Most of the time, yeah. So Super 8 uh, is this new film. It doesn't really have any big stars in it, uh, unless you count Kyle Chandler from Friday Night Lights uh, as a big star, which... I don't. Yeah, you don't. Elle Fanning from uh, uh, Dakota Fanning fame. Right. <laughs> she was in Somewhere. She was really good in Somewhere. Yeah. Um, the Sofia Coppola film. Uh, and then a bunch of kids. And, and honestly, uh, the movie takes place in 1979. It's certainly a throwback to... Uh, E.T. and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Uh, also, in in uh, in addition to that, Steven Spielberg uh, was one of the executive producers and uh, helped kind of shepherd this project along for Abrams. So that's kind of the background um, with this movie, and and uh, it's a coming of age story with all these kids yeah. uh, who have uh, an extraordinary adventure when they discover something uh, as they're trying to film a Super Eight, an alien. Yeah. Well. Well. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, okay. You want to go there? We're going to go there already? Because well, <laughs> no, no. I, will, I will start injecting my opinion if you start talking about the alien. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, well, but First of all, the alien doesn't spoil anything because that's in every trailer. and we. I know. And you know what? That is my problem with this film. I have a huge, huge stinking problem with this movie. And I, I hate to say... Uh, I hate to mention the marketing because I hate when when uh, film critics react to what the movie was supposed well, to be the and think, then what the movie actually is. I yeah. think it's okay to advertise a movie to get people in the theaters and then give them something slightly different. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was a miscalculation on Abrams' part to create a Cloverfield-like buzz surrounding uh, this monster yeah. uh, in this movie because um, – Because you don't see it and you need to. Right. Well, you don't you well, don't see to, it throughout to, the to film run, like like Jaws. Yeah. Right. He's using the Jaws technique well, here, of, of I, I, less is all, more. I, I don't want to compare him to Spielberg the whole way through. Well, I, I won't do that because that's my that's the thing that's been driving me craziest. This about reviews that I've read so far is that everyone basically uses phrases like Spielbergian yeah. and things like that. And I, I you know I really think that having him produce the project and. And having his name attached to it really didn't do him any favors here. There's definitely some similarities, but in terms oh, it did him a lot of favors in terms of box office. It's doing yeah. him a lot of favors, well, and he's going to embrace that, yet, that. The movie, the movie hasn't opened. You don't know that yet. I predict okay that it's going to be huge this weekend. Okay. Um, no, Spielberg doesn't have a corner on the market when it comes to uh, uh, writing um, young characters and uh, movie magic at that age and discovery. I think a lot of other people have done it too. Um, this movie reminded me a lot of Stand By Me, yeah. um, which is a Rob Reiner film. And he said it was one of the big – that was one oh, of the Oh, did big, he? Okay. Yeah. So one he of, gave one, a whole list of movies that inspired Super 8. Um, and I, uh, Night of, The original Night of the Living Dead was one – uh, um, trying to think, uh, he actually didn't have ET on there, but he did say that. Um, I think the character development the in this movie is better than ET. Oh, honestly, for sure. I'm for saying sure. I'm going right out on a limb, and I'm saying that there's a lot of things about this movie I love, and overall, I'm giving it a, a recommendation. So, if we're talking about characters and yeah. and coming of age stories, I love the way the kids in this movie interact with each other. Yeah. When you're that age, you have friendships with people, and you don't acknowledge. That the other person is a friend. It's just somebody you hang out with, and you don't, you don't have these soul searching conversations. You give each other crap all the time, and uh, your interactions with um, with other people, with with specific people, are different for everybody. Sure. And there's there's a um, a kid who we'll call the fat kid, and um, we'll, uh, another kid that we'll call the one that likes to blow things up. And the interactions that those two guys have um, between each other is so funny. And it's just yeah. basically insults going back and forth. And it just felt so real. And, and the moments, um, you know, with all the kids together were great. And then also the moments of reflection with um, Elle Fanning's character. And, and who's the lead? What's his name? I, why, do, why do you ask me these things? I don't know. Because I want to make you go to the computer and look it up. <laughs> why did... uh, the lead kid in the movie, though, the, they, they're both dealing with, uh, you know, some pretty heavy family stuff. And I think that that part of the story is, is well realized as well. In fact, it even opens with, um, you know, a tragedy and, and having uh, the lead character. And I thought that uh, was handled well, the, deal way, with it. the way that they did the, the tragedy, the way they handled that, too. I don't know. There, there's there's a lot of stuff that I actually uh, really enjoyed about it, but I was I was also – I was equally disappointed, I think. Really? Super, yeah. I, I mean, thought you were going to be Mr. Defender since I started bagging on it a little bit. No, no, not at all. I just – I'm annoyed with – Joel the, Courtney. Yeah. That's I'm, his name. I'm just annoyed with the way people are kind of framing the movie already as, okay. as like a lot of people are calling it. I think I read on the AV Club they said 
Abrams does his best Spielberg impression in a movie about something. Mm-hmm. Was there a little tease for it? I don't really think it's fair to do that, but, uh, you know, what's, I mean, he's kind of asking for it. Let's, let's be honest. Yeah, he he's is. asking for it. So, so what are we talking about next? Or where are we going with this? I'm ready. I'm ready to, to, to throw down. I, there's not really much to throw down on. I think we both kind of liked it, but we're kind of disappointed. The ending sucks. The ending is okay. Really bad. So here we go. So so this is what I'm going to say for J.J. Abrams, who is the the guy talking about the mystery box and and how to construct a mystery and how to keep an audience's attention and then uh, how to deliver the goods at the end of the film. Um, he failed so hardcore in this movie yeah. on that respect so on one hand we've got this great character drama and good for him and the kids and everything on the other hand there's this this uh scene in the av club at the at the high school where um everything is revealed in five minutes and all and and and, and it's just the most simplistic like worst explanation you could get for what this monster is and why it's here and then when the moment finally comes the the climax of the film uh it's just a rehash of that uh scene that we've seen before and it adds nothing to where the characters are going uh, and then it, it's and it's something that we've seen in uh, movies before, and one in particular. And I'm just thinking, well, the, how the, can the you get how that, can you get that far, and then yeah. bungle the the reveal of the monster that much? And yeah. and I'm not going to go into details. I'm not going to issue uh, uh, any spoilers. But um, there are some very direct comparisons that can be made. And overall, it was just a huge letdown. And then everything that followed after that, it seemed like he was in a rush to wrap things up. Yeah. He had um, some well, character arcs come to a close really very quickly. and very elements that take place between the kids. Yeah, quickly and conveniently. But yeah, there's, there's some great human elements that take place between the kids. But man, the parents, like, they really try and sell that story on the, the sort of disconnected parents or the parents that are sort of absentee from from or they're absent from the kids lives and the way they choose to explain that and wrap that up it's it's it just doesn't it didn't really fly for me yeah well it was too quick it happened out of nowhere and it well that's the thing is that i didn't think it was too quick as much as like they touch on at the beginning there's a couple of moments with kyle chandler and and uh ron eldard yeah um and in the, the, about the midway point, and then the last third of it, he is this just ridiculous side story, or you know, it's like a C story or D story where he's in. I can't even really talk about it without giving it away, <laughs> but he basically has his own little side adventure while right. all the kids are doing their thing. Right. And there are so many bits of like, just th- there's so many absurd setups that you know i know it's a movie about aliens and i know that it's i know it's a fiction movie and and you have to be able to suspend your belief but there are just so many moments where like like the train crash we know from the trailer it's a big train crash but the way that was orchestrated it's, it's huge just, it's just like the most like absurd <laughs> accident like they all almost die about a hundred times and then yeah. somehow they're unscathed and the car's fine and they you know like they they make out of there we know and that then, he can deliver and, and, and a good things action like scene, that that's happen, too much things like that happen the whole like there are just so many like the the plot is so based on circumstance and and just dumb luck timing and there's only so many times that i could deal with that before i was like okay and then he's going to accidentally yep there he is he actually so it's this him and so they, he uses convenience a little too much to set up things and make things work for his characters, I, feel, I So thought. it's this constant push and pull, and, and we're kind of agreeing on this, between uh, his, his want to appear 
to be realistic. Right. Right? Because he's making it a little scarier, a little more adult. And we should mention this film. period perfect. Too. Yeah, this, this film is more adult than something like E.T. It's definitely not a kid's film. Oh, sure. Um, uh, but then that push and pull between wanting to do that and then uh, just going too far with, with uh, the convenience of the Theatrics story. Theatrics and convenience yeah. and a lot of corner cutting. And the big problem you get when you, when you do things like um, big reveals or when you do mystery boxes, as, as he's come, those have been come to known, um, no matter what you reveal, it's never going to be satisfying enough for an audience. And there's a there's an old movie quote about that about how if you ever build something up, don't show it mm-hmm. because you'll always disappoint somebody. And when you structure an entire movie about that, and you actually give the audience what they want and show it to them, it just you know it deflates like it, everything. It deflates everything, and and the way in which that happened here was especially disappointing. You know, I would and agree. I never really understood how to handle that. You know, as a character, that monster because. Part of the time it pushes the story forward. Part of the time you're supposed to feel sorry for it. But you never see it. You never interact with it. So you have no connection to it at right. all. And so then they, they just kind of wedge it in for the last five minutes, ten or not five, the last 15 minutes. And you see one, you have one scene with it and then and one of the most convenient lines and explanations ever. And then it's just gone. Yeah. I, I, I would say um, that this is one of the reasons that a movie like E.T. works a little better is because the – the alien, whatever, is developed a little bit more yeah. as a character, as somebody, something, somebody that you care about. And I don't know that that, that works in this movie, but, yeah. um, you know, it's just – I think he did this in Star Trek well. I think mm-hmm. he did it in Mission Impossible 3 well with the mystery box. I yeah. think the reveals at the end of those movies are very effective and they work. The films are framed uh, in, in a consequential way so that you know that what happens and matters. I know, I, don't, I know he didn't write – Star Trek, did he write Mission Impossible 3? I think Brad... No, no, Brad Burton. No, he's, he's directing the he's new one. I don't know. I'm just saying he knows how to unfold action. Sure. And, and in this movie, um, for him to, to base a lot of the marketing mm-hmm. on uh, the reveal of the monster, I'm telling people right now, when you go see this movie, that reveal does not live up. If you know that going in, maybe uh, you'll just appreciate some of the other yeah, charms of I mean, the film. being able to focus on the kids and being able to focus on those other elements. Like, the first two-thirds of the movie is pretty, pretty good. It's great. And it you seems know, really like, personal, this, this yeah. uh, you know, idea of these kids making movies you can tell that abrams mm-hmm. is drawing from his own life oh, man, and it feels real scene early on in the movie that takes place at a train yard where the big um, derail crash happens and it's such a like microcosm of filmmaking like you have the actor who who is like going over his lines over and over and over again and, and is very sort of he's not really vain but he's worried about how he how he's going to come off not how he looks but how he's going to come off and then you've got the quiet actress who just blows everybody away and the director, you know, is is ordering everybody around and bossing everyone. And it was just such a neat little, like, miniature version of a film set to watch unfold. And that, that was one of my favorite moments in the whole movie. It was a great moment. Um, yeah. Th- so there are a lot of things like that. And, and I was thinking back, you know, movies that – another movie to compare it to because he produced it and, and his lost crew uh, worked on it with him, Cloverfield, as an example. That's That's another sort of mystery box movie where you never actually see the beast until the end. But when you see it, it doesn't matter um, because the movie's not about that. It's mm-hmm. about these characters trying to get from point A to point B. And so when you make – I never really felt the bigger connection in Super 8 to something else. You mm-hmm. know, I, I really – they try and bank it a lot on, you know, father and son reuniting and that – but they don't really tie anything together, so that doesn't work. Then they try and make it him trying to uh, – the kid trying to catch up to uh, um, L Fanning, and that doesn't really, you know – 
sell it to us either, especially because it happens so late in the movie. And so it's they. He, I, don't, I think his biggest problem was just he never found a, a big enough like he never he never found a big enough motivating um, incident or inciting incident to sort of carry the whole movie forward. And so you see two or three things that he tries to throw in to to get us there, but single handedly none of them do the job. So that's my big thing about it. It's great. Overall, though, I, I enjoyed it. I'm going to see it tonight in IMAX with a friend of mine. You're going again? Yeah, yeah. I have no desire to go back. I want to go again just to make sure that everything I've said here is <laughs> true. Yeah, you know. they had a screening the other night. We saw an early press screening. There was another one. I had an opportunity to see it. I didn't. I feel like there's not a lot left to learn from that movie. Um, it seems like one of those movies that... You know, you go through it once and you get all you need from the plot, but watching the kids again would be fun. So maybe yeah. maybe I'll revisit it in a couple of years or so. But um very, very minor recommendation for me. It's it's uh you know, it's it's disappointing. Yeah. Ultimately. It's just it's just disappointing. Disappointing and, and a minor recommendation really fell under expectations for me. Hey everybody, Trevin McGee here from the Scene Stealers podcast. Um part of the problem with recording podcasts so far in advance like we've been doing is that every now and then we talk about a movie that gets pulled out of theaters before the podcast goes live. That happened this week with the greatest movie ever sold, so we're about to talk about it for roughly 15 minutes, and it's no longer in theaters. So if you want to skip ahead or go ahead and just stop the podcast right now, I promise our feelings won't be hurt. We'll be back next week with reviews of The Green Lantern, and uh, that's it. So have a good weekend, and talk to you soon. I did get to see uh, Palm Wonderful presents the greatest movie ever sold. <laughs> Morgan Spurlock's Full title. new documentary. Yeah. Uh, Spurlock's new documentary, uh, Liberty Hall. And um, Morgan Spurlock, of course, is the guy who did Super Size Me, which is a big breakout hit and a great TV show uh, for FX. Yeah, 30, 30 days? Thir- 28 days 20, <laughs> later. <laughs> no, it was 30 days. 30 yeah, days. Sorry. yeah, where he basically puts himself in a situation for 30 days where he has someone else. Um, he drops someone else into a situation for 30 days and watches them. Yeah, it was all about putting yourself in somebody else's shoes. Yeah. And, and then he did... Um, well, he did Where in the World is Osama Bin Laden. Which was not so good. Was not good at all. Um, and and then he also did uh, Simpsons documentary in honor of their like 400th episode or something that was on Fox. Um, and now he's did done... Did not know that. And now he's done this. Um, and the entire oh, boy, movie... Boy, has he done it. Yeah, I don't know how... I, don't know. I just made that up. Uh, I haven't seen it. I don't know how anybody else feels about Morgan Spurlock. Um, my biggest problem with him is that he... It seems that he can't make a documentary where he's not... Not just the star, but everything is sort of framed around him and how he... Um, His experience? I, yeah, I'm having a hard time even putting it into words. But he manufactures conflict a lot. Well, in his documentary, but he's such a genial guy. Like people, people yeah. prefer watching him than than Michael Moore because Michael Moore is such a uh, polarizing yeah. person. Well, they both kind of do the same thing, right? And there's they they sort of they ask a question they already know the answer to, and then they find a way to <laughs> they find a way to dramatize it. You know, greatest movie ever sold. If you if you don't know the premise, is that uh, Morgan Spurlock's decided that product placement is going to be the subject of this next movie, and he's so he goes out and tries to pay. For the sum total of the movie's budget, everything in the movie through product placement. Um, his thinking being at the beginning, you know, these big budget Hollywood movies, they, they're huge hits and they have product placement. So maybe if a tiny little movie like his has product placement in it, in it, it will also be a success. And he just kind of rolls with that. Um, 
of course, once he gets what he wants, then he starts to worry about artistic integrity and whether or not he can make the movie he wants to make without them having final approval, them being the advertisers that he sold the uh, himself to or the movie to. Um, and it becomes a big conflict over artistic integrity versus you know commercial viability. Palm Wonderful mm-hmm. is the company that paid the most and got their name above the That's titles, correct. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So do they try to exert control over the film at one point? No. Um, there's one scene where he pitches uh, because th- there's – for the three top-tier advertisers, the, the one who pitches in the most, they, they get their name above the title. And then they also get a 30-second commercial in the movie that he will film and do. Um, and then the next two highest uh, sponsors will also get 30-second spots at different points in the movie. Um, he also he also extends it to Palm to where if it's not a uh, any other beverage that's not Palm will be blurred out, <laughs> um, which is pretty funny um, when that happens. And then uh, he works with the uh, convenience store chain uh, Sheets and comes up with four collector's cups for <laughs> yeah and then he's got you know stand up ads and then he gets jet blue and then he, he does an in flight um he does the in flight um prep video that they play on all the screens mm-hmm. um so there there are a bunch of things that kind of lighten the mood um and it's funny and it's genial and and Morgan Spurlock is you know just a generally likable guy my biggest problem with the movie is just that um he does he he does set out to well basically there's a big holy shit moment where he's like I sold all this stuff and now they want to tell me what to do do I let them tell me what to do that's the <laughs> yeah yeah see the reason so, I've never not gone to seen this film so far is because I don't think I'm going to learn anything from you, it you don't I mean, and that's really that's my biggest there, there's you don't learn anything from it it's entertaining um to a degree but you know you have to it's it's also it helps a lot that it's about 90 minutes because any longer than that and I just kind of want to punch him in the face because he just gets old you know it's, it's the same thing over and over again he does talk to some interesting people finally um, right which is good i mean he gets to he talks to noam chomsky he talks to um um he, he talks to ralph nader and i'm trying to think who else i mean the one of the guys from okay go oh he talks to some directors that's kind of interesting in fact he does talk to jj abrams at one point um peter berg has the best interview though peter berg just says some really candid stuff that i i I liked a lot that he was able to get him to talk that way and then brett ratner is um another interesting interview i'd love to watch the full brett ratner interview he doesn't disappoint he basically talks all about selling out and everyone sells out so why not you know if the scene says there's going to be a car in it why not be an audi yeah who cares it's a real car it beats having a fake car. So it sounds like there's good moments. It may not amount to much, but yeah, and that's that's how I would that's how I'd sum it up. Is that basically there there are a handful of really um, solid moments in the movie. He's asking a question he knows the answer to. The entire movie is sort of based around him um, going through the motions, and uh, when he tries to when he tries to be funny, that's that's actually one of the better parts of the movie. He he gets obsessed with this shampoo called Mane and Tail. And it's a shampoo that you can use on you know, on human hair or on horses, and he pitches them at one point, and they agree, and he's all excited. And then I guess they they pulled out, but he shot his mane and tail commercial anyway, and it happens towards the end of the the movie, and that's really funny. You know, 
to go back to what I was saying about how he answers his own questions, he sh- he's he goes to his lawyer after he gets all the contracts, and it's just like I've got all this stuff. What do I do? All this stuff. And um, the guy says, "Well, you know, you should. You're gonna have to follow what you said you'd do if you want to get any of their money." And so that kind of worries him. Well, then he goes to Palm, and he goes to Palm with uh, three pitches for his commercials that are going to take place during the movie. And honestly, they're all pretty bad pitches. I mean, they're they're pitches that if I were an advertiser, I wouldn't want anything to do with. One is that the camera's up close on him, and he like pops into frame and says, "Hey, I got to tell you something," and talks about all the benefits of Palm. And then towards and the camera's slowly pulling out as he's doing it. And then the last thing he mentions is that in men over forty. Um, who drank Palm Wonderful one, one Palm Wonderful a day um, for four weeks? Noticed um, a difference in like fuller, longer-lasting erections. Forty percent as effective as Viagra. And by the time he's done with that, the cameras pull all the way back, pulled all the way out to reveal that he has a huge erection. Mm. And for some reason, they didn't go for that one. They didn't think <laughs> that was you know. So all of his pitches are kind of set up like that. Where they're, you know, so he, he knows exactly that, the kind of reaction he's yeah, going to get. And they See, say, it's that and kind so of disingenuous. And so they say no. Thing. We're not. They they all they right. play along like, oh, that's funny, Morgan. But you know, we were wondering if you would talk about how, like, for example, and actually the CEO of Palm is, um, she's really affable and, and friendly, and she says, you know, I brought in some some pages. Palm Wonderful is one hundred percent juice. Here is minute. I thought if you compared us to our competitors, like Minute Maid and these other ones, where they have you know, point five percent juice, yeah, or, or you know, one percent juice, and and talk about how like people who think they're getting this are actually getting this, and talk about how our product's actually what we say it is, and so then then it cuts to him in the elevator. And he's like, "What am I going to do, man? I guess I'm going to make their commercial. I don't know. It's just a <laughs> stupid commercial. <laughs> You're supposed to make for your movie to get made. And they paid him a million dollars. That's how much the top sponsorship was. So I, I think when you compare something like this to the moment in Catfish, the documentary that came out last year that everybody says uh, it was faked at a certain point. Right. There, there's a moment in that film that feels like uh, you don't actually you don't. It doesn't feel like it at the time. It feels very real. But upon further inspection, when you go back and you and you think about the plot of the story, yeah, you 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 kind of have to decide for yourself whether you think it was real or not but there's one scene where the moment may have already happened and they recreated it for the camera Uh. and it seems like that in this uh in everything spurlock's been doing recently he kind of already knows what's going to happen he just needs to do it in front of the camera exactly well it's just like it seems like an elaborate setup that he's already in on the way that he stages and the way that he he sets up where in the world is osama bin laden that was insulting to me like by the end of that movie, because he did get some interesting information. You know, he, got, he did actually go talk to a lot of people that had some interesting things to say. I mean, that movie came out in 2006, and you have people on um, camera saying, oh, Osama bin Laden's in Pakistan, clearly. Like, there's no way he's in the mountains. He's in Pakistan. You have multiple people saying that, you know. And um, But the, the climax, he, he sets it up so that that movie, first of all, it's super self-indulgent because the whole reason he wants to get to the bottom of this and find this that root this terrorist out is because his girlfriend's pregnant and he doesn't want to bring a child into a right. world where the with, with people that evil that's the conceit that's the conceit yeah and then so they use that to run everything parallel so every time you see him mucking around in the mid-east it cuts back to his girlfriend you know second trimester right third trimester all that right. kind of stuff and so but that's finally, his thing he gets it all back to personal right. stuff and so finally it ties in at the end with him making this 
heartfelt decision. Do I go into this? Do I go into this dangerous territory where he might be, or right. do it, do I go home and see my girlfriend and my soon to be born uh, son? Right. You know, and he he debates. He stands at the border, debates, and then turns around and goes back home. And I'm going to spoil it because I don't care. It's five years old, and, <laughs> it's and no spoilers on that. Yeah. It, so he he turns around and goes back, and it's just really forced and 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 fake. And there's a lot of that, a lot of moments like that that happen. In this it's really interesting when he shows the minutia. It's really interesting when towards the end of the movie, there's a like it's almost a summit of representatives from all the people who are going to advertise in the movie, and they talk to his ad exec friend about how they're going to help promote the movie. And that's when they come up with the stuff like the JetBlue um, spot or the cutouts for um, the sheets chain or the the thing he does for Amy's Pizza and all those. That You start to see how they integrate, and you're like, oh, that makes total sense now because now they're paying to get his face on things, and they're getting free or they're getting promoted in his movie, but then they're giving him free promotion. He makes out like a bandit because he gets double promoted. Mm-hmm. And and um, it was really that was one of the more compelling moments in the movie for me. And then just getting to see how the directors handled what um, they have to put up with that was also pretty interesting. And then you also get to see some industry men who talk about how they, you know, they wanted a specific product in a movie, and when they didn't get it, I think it was like I think no, he didn't say which movie, but this this guy um, said, you know, I wanted a movie or I wanted a product in this movie. They said no way, no way. Uh, this director kept pushing back on me, so finally I said, "All right." And he called his. I called my. Uh, I called the movie's executive producer and told him I was taking all their cars away because he'd provided all the cars for the movie. And so he he had his men go down there and pull the cars. And the producer called back and said, "We've been rethinking the scene, and we're gonna do you know like stories like that are interesting. There's only one like it in the movie, though." So you know, I'm actually uh, more uh, at this at this point in our conversation. I'm more interested in talking about. Uh, the line at which the, – the moment in a, in a documentary at which we say to ourselves, this is fake and I'm pissed off because it's different for every movie, right? Right. When you watch a Werner Herzog documentary, there's always uh, stuff in the movie that he has staged to mm-hmm. find what he calls the ecstatic truth. When you watch a Michael Moore movie, uh, there's always some sort of manipulation or convenient thing that's left out. When you Usually watch happens at the titles. Right. When you watch Catfish, there's that moment that is presented to you as real that p- possibly isn't. And in in a Spurlock movie, uh, you wonder, you know, and this happens also with Michael Moore, is he just playing the rube because he's trying to get a reaction? But then when we watch a movie like Borat or Bruno, we know that he's trying to fool people on purpose to get a good scene. And as long as it's funny and their reaction is truthful, we're okay with it. So what my my thing is, is comparing all of those things together, I think the ultimate moment at where I draw the line is whether that – whether recognizing that moment of untruth is as is enlightening to the movie or or entertaining or not, and if it's not, I feel betrayed. Yeah, that's that's where I draw the line. I have to say because I don't I don't think that you should not have an untruth in a documentary. I think yeah. there are always going to be that uh, that kind of stuff. For me, in there. it's it's if my intelligence is insulted, right? You know, and take you know, there's a million ways to interpret that, but that's my big. My big thing, I think. To, I think back to Bowling for Columbine and those stage shots in Charlton Heston's backyard after Heston supposedly walked away, and it does over-the-shoulder shots where Heston would clearly have been standing. There's no way they could have done it because there was only one camera there, and he's holding. You know, this is her face. This is the face of that little girl, Mr. Heston. 
he's clearly not even there. Right. You know, and that that was the point in that movie where I and I loved that movie the first two or three times I saw it, but that was the first time I'd ever seen a Michael Moore movie. And you know, then I went back and went, wait a second, like he's manufactured half of this and to prove a point. Uh, you know, I, I wish that it was possible to make that point without having to doctor anything. And that's what really bugs me about um, Michael Moore and Spurlock, guys like that. You know, and th- that's what really irks me at all is that they just to hammer it home. They've got to they've got to invent a few things to just to just to get their point across. But you know, that's just that's just me. I think a movie's like uh, Burden of Dreams. That's one of my favorite documentaries mm-hmm. ever. And I, there's not much in there that I feel like was taken out of context or, or you know. That's the Herzog, uh, Klaus Kinski movie. Where yeah, it's not by Herzog. But right. It's, it's about yeah, that. It's about Herzog and Kinski yeah. trying to make this movie. And that's, I mean, that's my go-to for how to just make a straight documentary with footage. And I know that there's, I know that they, someone made those cuts. I know right. someone made those edits. I know someone structured that story. Like, I'm not completely ignorant to that. But there's never a moment where they recreate a scene. So that you can see what they're doing. You know? But there is a moment where you get to see Mick Jagger. Mm-hmm. And Jason Robards in a <laughs> bell Jason tower Robards, together. Uh, in, in, what is it, Fitzcarraldo? Yeah. Wow. Ring, ringing a bell. That movie, movie would have been quite different. That movie was 75% done, and Robards got amoebic dysentery, was ordered home, and his doctor wouldn't let him come back. So um, Herzog had to recast the Thank Robards God. character. Then... No, just the Robards. Oh, okay. Jagger was still going to be there, but by the time it, um, by the time he found uh, who he was going to go with, which of course Klaus Kinski, um, it conflicted with Jagger's touring schedule, and so someone had to go out and tour for Black and Blue because that movie, that, that album wasn't going to sell itself, <laughs> and so uh, he he had to step out. So instead of recasting recasting that, he just rewrote the entire movie. Yeah. Which is good because that scene looks and sounds horrible. Looks horrible, and that's yeah. one of the only that's the only proof that they were ever because Herzog destroys all his deleted scenes. Nice. So that's the only proof that that ever even happened. Another movie that's similar, a documentary that's similar to that that I enjoyed was uh, Hearts of Darkness. That's so, a great movie. Yeah, just both those movies deal with obsession, but they use a lot of just not that's found footage, but Eleanor Coppola, yeah, and all the footage from Apocalypse Now, the making of, yeah. yeah. So th- those are the documentaries I gravitate more towards. Capturing the Freedmen's another great example. Docs that just you know take found footage and, and assemble it into a narrative, not trying to create their own narrative from scratch. And oh, I didn't get the shot. Let's let's you know let's move around it. Let's fake it. And that's my big. I know we've talked about more before. That's my big problem with more is that he's more than willing to do that kind of stuff. Well, I would say we don't have enough time to talk about the top eight uh, Super 8 no, films. So if you that. if you want to check it out, uh, you can go to scenestealers.com, which is my website, mm-hmm. and see uh, the top eight 1980s kid adventure films, which, which was basically something where I qualified it by saying, did it take place in the 80s? Mm-hmm. Were the main characters kids? And did they go through some sort of adventure, be that fantasy, sci-fi, or whatever, but that had to be grounded in reality? So in the never-ending story, it starts in reality. They go into a fantasy okay. world, and then it ends in reality. But if the whole thing took place in a fantasy world, uh, that one doesn't count. Doesn't count. Okay. So go check out that list. It has one rated R movie on it, which is um, mildly controversial because it really was about kids. But, hey, it was rated R. All right. And you look at it now, and it's like uh, totally PG-13. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. All right. Anyway. Well, on that note, and on that very long note, because uh, we ran long. 
we're going to go. You have a good weekend, and uh, we'll check in next time. Later.